Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Emerge. This time, I have on the show once more Bonita Roy, and this is the second episode in our three-episode arc that will serve as the finale of season two of Emerge, where we're doing what Bonita calls a source code analysis, this time of the idea of trust. And if you haven't already, I, I, I highly recommend that you first, before you listen to this episode, go back and listen to the previous episode in the stream on uh, the concept of power, because it adds in some important uh, kind of framing that will help this episode make optimal sense uh, to listen to. And furthermore, I, I, I really invite you to try to listen in a participatory way to this conversation. I, you know, th this conversation for me, like every conversation I've had with Bonita, and, and you'll hear it in the conversation, it was, to be frank, quite trippy for me. It was very psychoactive. It was really, I could feel the process dissolving some of the ways that I was stuck in seeing the world through the lens that I had come to understand around this idea of trust. And I don't know if this will kind of translate uh, to you as the listener, but I hope it does. And I think that my, my sense is that it's more likely to translate if you listen in a way that's more engaged. This is not something that I think will be of most benefit if you're just trying to kind of download it as if it's information. It's, it's, it is a participatory process. And so try it out. See what it's like to kind of engage with this conversation more deeply, if that's possible. Um, or don't. Do whatever it is that you want. In any case, uh, I found this conversation to be really beautiful and, and, and striking. And I think it points the way forward, uh, actually. Um, this kind of move points the way forward for us now. And it's, um, it's a, an honor to take part in such conversations. And I hope that it is enjoyable to listen to. In any case, please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Bonita Roy. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. In this episode, my guest is once again uh, one of the favorites of the show at this point, uh, Bonita Roy. And uh, I'll set up the conversation a little bit as we discussed ahead of recording. Um, this is essentially a continuation of the conversation we had in the last episode around source code analysis, which last time we used to look at the concept of power. In this episode, we're going to be using a, the same form of analysis to look at the concept of trust. And, and just to reframe and remind our listeners, and as well as myself, you know what the purpose of doing source code analysis is, is that we're trying to find a way to have better and more useful discussions around complex issues specifically ways of talking and, and being together that allow us to avoid certain traps like postmodern structuralism, 
reductive empiricism, the vertical move into meta-theory, which Bonita and I discussed in our first episode together, or reducing uh, things to what we think we see in the realm of nature, which is called the naturalistic fallacy, which I learned about in the last episode. And other, I imagine, uh, Bonita, are there other common traps? There must be many. Yeah. And and actually, I was thinking about, you know, why does it matter? It's always good to come into these kinds of conversations, reminding yourself that we want to put something out there that matters. And today, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, um, I think it's John Rawls. I might be mistaken. And if anyone out there knows, uh, please correct it. Um, But this notion of when you create create um, ideas for people for like a constitution or a government or governance or legislation or uh, morals, you want to be at a place where you don't know you're speaking from a place where it is impossible to know what situation you're going to be born in. Right. So you don't want to speak as a privileged white man or a rich um, uh, European or a disabled person or even, you know, an underprivileged person. So I think one of the things that this type of source code analysis enables us to do is actually disembed from those mm. biases and that hidden agenda that we want to fashion the truth based on a hidden agenda or a need and try to work with human systems as complex emergent systems that have evolutionary genius and mm. um, and hopefully come up with ideas that um, satisfied that condition of, uh, I think, John Rawls. So that, that came up for me today. Great. Yeah. And, and actually, I can confirm that that is John Rawls, and it's the philosophical tool known as the veil of ignorance, if I remember correctly, that allows people to make decisions without bias. And it's actually one of the few things I remember from my philosophy degree. So I'm glad that that finally came into that came into use here. Uh, and so yeah, so that's the setup. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and so Bonita, how, how should we apply source code analysis to the issue of trust? Like, what mm-hmm. are we doing here? So we'll take a different tact. Last time, um, I had already laid it out as a done deal. And this time, I'll give you more of the flavor of how you work into one of these these questions. Um, and the reason why is because when I was trying to identify um, power and trust, a lot of that had to do with my experience working, uh, especially with horses and training stallions. Um, and power seemed to be a uh, no-brainer, universally understood by most people. But when I started doing workshops on trust, um, I was really surprised that the way people made meaning around trust was really diverse and, and oftentimes competing. And it was like, wow, I had an eye-opener that um, we throw this word around. It's very important. Um especially I was doing the exercises in organizations and people talk about building trust and trust, you know, workshops. And, um, but when we kind of tried to do what I call, what's the native meaning, 
What is the native meaning? How do I feel in my body what that word means to me? People came out with wildly diverse um, responses and results. And this was for many years, two or three years, the case. And I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really figure it out. So I just wanted to, um, to kind of give the audience a flavor of how the process of figuring it out went. And um, also a little spoiler alert, I'm not sure that it's very um, cl cleanly figured out yet. Not, not like power. Yeah. So um, mm. that's what we'll be doing today. Okay, so I thought I would um, share how I first started investigating um, this 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 uh, diverse array of, of trust. Now, just to back up again for the audience, we're approaching this as we did with power, that trust is an emergent pattern and that you can't work at the level of the pattern. We're trying to s figure out what are the protocols or the generative functions that we can work with. So in doing that, what we're saying is if we want to build trust and we know the, the, the protocols in us, in we've evolved behaviors and, and emotions and embodied responses, what we want to try to understand is what do we need to amplify What's in us that we need to amplify that will build trust and what's in us that we need to attenuate or dampen that is an obstacle to trust. So that's kind of what source code analysis is. That's the meaning of protocol. So we can then do this dynamic steering mm. and just add a little more of this to the mix in our ordinary everyday interactions. So when we talk about power, that's a little easier for people to understand as an emergent pattern because we have words for the patterns of power. We have patriarchy and holarchy and heterarchy and, you know, so we have words. But what do, what do we mean when we think of trust as a pattern? And we live in a cold time where we understand how to visualize networks and uh, we can visualize patterns of trust networks or, you know, nodes of, of trust. And this is what I do when I go into organizations. And at the workshop, it's very, to give people a, a taste of this, it's, it's very simple. It's kind of like building human, finding the human operating code, right? So when you're building software and you have all these permission levels on communication platforms, right? Those are levels of trust, right? You're building. So we, we actually mm. come with this. We come with this implicit way we manage our relationships and it builds a pattern of trust. So to give people an easy idea of this, I give them this little illustration. I sent it to you so you can help me describe it. And it has a dot in the middle. And then it has concentric circles that get kind of faded, more faded as they go out. I think there's three circles. And what I, and the, what I ask people to do is imagine the center circle is them. And then think of people who know, who they know, who would go in the closest Who's closest in your trust network, right? Who are the people that are in that first level? And um, and at first, people 
they're a little surprised how easy it's to do because you just let people that you know float into your imagination and um, one or two or three or seven people, they make it into that first circle. And then you'll feel, oh, here's that person. And you'll just feel, ah, for some reason, you know, they don't make it into that circle. And then somebody else, maybe. So we work primarily just with Mm. three levels and you people experience that there's a natural Mm. something that's happening in us that builds this pattern of trust. And then, so, 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 um, so that's the first step. Mm. So it turns out the results that I've gotten from that simple exercise are really fascinating. Everybody acknowledges that they've been able to do the exercise, but they are surprised that it's more complex in terms of what comes online for them when when they're watching themselves do the exercise. And really cool things happen like some people say, well, it's a no-brainer. You just put your family in the center and everybody else is out, you know, further out. And other people say, oh no. No one in my family makes it to the center. Mm. And there's, yeah, so there's this wildly diverse uh, conversation. And then people start to say, well, what are the parameters? What are the implicit metrics? Because they'll say, well, the people that are in my circle, my closest circle, are some of those people I trust the most because there's someone at work and he's very predictable. But one is someone in my family, and they're not predictable at all. In fact, they're very unpredictable. So you have all this kind of what what I was discovering was this kind of really messy way that people were relating to what was um, very tacit knowledge to them. Everyone can do the exercise. The people, Hmm. as they mine, were trying to mine what was going on in the exercise it got very messy really fast. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like almost as soon as you left the space of just bare reportage and got to interpretation, it immediately went into very different directions. Correct. And people realize all kinds of things. So we won't go into that, but so over time I looked at it more and more closely and where I'm at with it right now in terms of, you know, trying to to get to the not native meaning of trust, or or this this kind of conceptual prime. There's a bunch of things that are operating in terms of trust, and one is um, something that uh, Carl Wyke, who did a lot of research on trust in organizations and in groups. Um, and in relationships. And what he said, one of the things that's interesting about trust is that um, given the human condition, it actually declines over time. So that when you're Hmm. in a close relationship, those things that you, the person is predictable, or, you know, you know that they're going to do the certain set of things, they become expectations. They no longer become gifts of trust. And so as your Mm. expectation rises, then your um, tendency to enter a distrustful relationship or a situation of distrust actually increases. So I think this was one of the reasons why people's reporting was so messy. 
Um, and, mm. um, yeah, so, so that, that yeah, it was, also, I mean, it brings to mind that certain dynamics in like long-term romantic relationships too, at least brings into my mind. Yeah, exactly. And, and mm. Carl White was working with high reliable organizations, crisis, uh, first responders and, and people like that to see when the, when do these, these networks break down? So that's that's something to keep in mind. There's some counterintuitive things going on in um, this domain of trust. Um, mm. One of the things that's similar to that that I discovered in while well, I kept on doing these workshops is that um, we very very strongly feel when trust has been broken or when, when we're mistrustful, right? That produces a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, embodied experience when you're in a hmm. distrustful. But we, we somehow do not feel trust. And this is something like Jordan Peterson talks about that I can turn into this little dialogue on trust. You know, every day we wake up and there's electricity and then there's this. And, and this is actually all these services and modern life is actually built up by huge amounts of trust in the system. Mm -hmm. But we don't experience that. I mean, can you imagine if you experienced all those little trust uh, right. agreements? You'd be overwhelmed before you, you know, you had your coffee, right? But, mm. um, but we very sharply experience mistrust or distrust or broken trust. And this is another mm. thing to know about ourselves. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. And it brings to mind how this kind of way of approaching trust could really help us clarify like where blockchain could actually be useful versus where it might actually be quite dangerous in terms of what trust it abstracts us from. So bingo. I mean, one of the things that all this work and it, you know, this is this is an option, but one of the things that my work is predicated on, it says that there's more evolutionary genius in how it actually works than in the creative way we could design blockchain, right? And I think people that mm -hmm. trying to design blockchain want it to want it to match the actual evolutionary process as much as possible. So, we, for me, I like to measure how humans have evolved and do some kind of like biomimicry to that, you know. Um, but certainly, the, people could disagree with that. So that's that's two things. Um, and then the third thing is um, this. So there's expectation and that trust declines over time because the more trust you have, the more the expectations can outpace the trust and makes. And then there's the sense of the impact that, you know, we don't we don't feel the impact of all the trust things that are happening. And the third thing is entitlement. And entitlement greatly reduces your ability to build trust networks because you can't see it. This mm. goes closely along with the first two. So, um, so we let's just let that hang there, and we can come back to it. It's a little harder to explain without going further. So, um, yeah. 
That's yeah. Okay. So we've, we have these three components and are these, would I, would it be accurate to say like, these are the three components of the level of the protocol around trust or how do we understand what these three components are? Right. So we haven't gotten to the level. I told you this is a Warren, this was going to be a little messier. We haven't gotten to the protocols yet. These are three things. So where we're at now is I did these workshops, things were messy. um, And then I learned these three things, expectations, Hmm. trust declines, um, the impact on our bodies, and this question of entitlement. So just let that hang in there. This is not a direct route to our ultimate goal, but but this is something that was, you know, keep extracting from this research to try to get to something that's more of a conceptual prime. Okay. Already, this feels extremely useful, but I'm excited to go further. So you identified these three things to keep in mind. And then what was the next move? Okay. So, and again, you know, I'm going to tell it like, then there was a next move is this took me almost four years and it's, and, and, and and it's not as clean yet. So the next, Mm -hmm. the next thing is this notion of, um, of, the, so the word predictable comes up a lot in different ways in people's tr- debriefing in their trust network. But mm. people also are uncomfortable with that because they know they don't, they don't, like in a work situation, that's kind of pretty common. You know, he's predictable. I can trust she's always, she ha- she's has to open the office and she's predictable, you know, so this comes, right. but when it gets on a more personal level, that word um, people feel uncomfortable with that word. And then they realize also that some of the people they trust the most are wildly unpredictable. So this brings us to the concept of predictability. So a stone is very predictable. I can trust that it lays upon the earth, right? <laughs> and um I spent a lot of time thinking about free will and uh, process philosophy. And I had this phrase that the world was made up of promise and possibility. So if the stone didn't promise to lay upon the earth, I could not pick her up and throw it. You see, so Mm. um, we can only fly. Flight is made possible by the promise of gravity. So this started to integrate itself with my inquiry around trust. And I started to see that trust was like tacit issuing of promissory notes. And if it's very predictable, like a stone, you don't have the gift of trust. It's too predictable. So the sweet spot for trust is something very similar to what Ralph Stacy calls in complex systems, they're predictably unpredictable. So mm. that was the next move, this notion of, you know, the kinds of trust, the kinds of promises we're interested in, in the human sphere are these predictably unpredictable. And mm. that actually builds more trust, right? If someone's just a robot and they do, but if they have a complex life and to, keep their promise. They have to pull things off. And you're at the edge of whether or not you think 
the person can actually pull that off for you because their life is a mess right now. And, but they come back or they mm -hmm. come through. So this is something I thought was very rich to understand about trust and that for different people there, they can manage different amounts of wiggle room in this predictably mm. unpredictable. And the way you build trust is by staying in that sweet spot of whatever range of wiggle room that you can have. So that was the second move okay. or the third move. Okay. Let's, let's spend a, a little bit of time here just sort of developing this. And I want to see if I, I kind of am getting it. And one thing that came into my mind probably because I just saw it a, a, the other day is, is this idea of like a attractor points in a system, the way that trust can become a kind of almost like has a gravitational pull in the way that you're describing it, but it's not, it, it can never be pinned down or it's not predictable over time. I don't know if that, if that yes. resonates with you, but that's a great yeah. visual because now instead of these static concentric rings, you have something that's much more dynamic and wobbles, but it, there's a mm. feeling of return. Yes. Right? There's a feeling of return in those strange attractor things, right? Oh, yeah. And it, that also brings to mind the kind of embodied sense of mistrust where I there is ways to return to trust. If you can heal the act of mistrust or the kind whatever that feeling is between people. Yes. And that that capacity to come back to trust uh, that brings up for me that kind of idea. Yes, and in in you know, again, once you work with this stuff, it becomes very rich. But in, in very high-risk environments, the wiggle room can get very intense so that we've mm. all seen these movies where you're, you know, in, in terms of, oh, like billions, if you watch those kind of movies. It's like everybody's everybody's playing everyone else, but inside that there are trusts relationships that that don't get broken even though it looks like they're playing against each other and you know there's there's this that and this is very high dynamic complex way of relating in complex systems you know so this 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 way of uh um you know how much wobble can you can the system mm. hold without breaking the return and 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 again, Carl Weick has done quite a quite a lot of interesting work on this in terms of when do uh, uh, relationships in kind of like SWAT teams break down or firefighters break down mm. into dyads and individuals. And so, um, but just for the audience to get this sense of what how rich and complex the lived experience of trust is. Mm. Okay, so trust is this predictably unpredictable phenomenon or that's the 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 kind of strange space in which trust is most developed and built over time is when you're in relationship with somebody and they can observe you uh predictably being trustworthy in unpredictable situations correct if i can be more unpredictable with you and we still have trust, that's a deeper trust. 
if it's someone else mm-hmm. to maintain the trust, I have to be more predictable, then that's actually less trustful relationship. There's right. not, you see how it, right. it works like counterintuitively. Not, it's not a, it's not a <laughs> linear correlation. <laughs> Yeah, totally. It's just, it's, it's an idea that I'm like turning over my mind. And as it kind of unpacks itself, it's, it's just, yeah, it's very rich and it's making sense out of a lot of relationships I've had in in my past as it unpacks itself. Like I, I think of how unpredictable the teacher at my monastery was, you know, sometimes he would just do stuff that was not at all expected by, you know, the people that were there. And and in a sense that that did make him more trustworthy because in the doing of it, he was always, there was always a way in which he was in the final analysis, deeply trustworthy. Yes. Now we have to try to get at that. That that's the final analysis. That's where we're moving toward. Right. So, um, and so that I think we've, we've set that up good. So, so, so now I want to do a little aside and that is in my, you know, examination of this, um, trust, the etymology of trust comes from the same root as troth or truth. And there's something about this deep trust which is where people start to see that you know the center of the strange attractor that the core truth of a person that inside this wildly unpredictable and for that reason generative person they always can can manifest this core truth of themselves there's something mm. like that in highly, you know, like perhaps your teacher, highly developed people have this, this um, mm. great leaders in combat have this. When they ask mm. people to trust you despite crazy pro- plans you, you're going to throw at them or something like that, you know, so there's mm. a, a core truth. And so, um um, that's another another part of it, and um, so the so what I've come up with, and like I said, I don't think it's as cl- clean. Instead of saying predictably and predictable, I I return to this notion of promise and possibility, and that is that the the richest trust relationships create promises, right, or promises that scale the possibility that wouldn't be possible otherwise. And so that can look, that possibility can be in the realm of unpredictable, right? So we're interested Mm. in the kinds of promises we can make to each other that create possibilities that are otherwise not available to anyone. And so Mm. that is basically where I'm at in terms of trust. So how do we build trust networks when we want someone to be something to be promised or guarantee or a warranty? It needs to then avail itself of a higher possibility or a greater possibility emerging that isn't possible if that is not established. So there's Mm. all. So, so, yeah. 
Okay. So like, it's, uh, uh, sorry, I just got really excited. So like a, a kind of uh, lesser promise that is in service of a bigger promise of possibility. Is that? Yeah. So no, it could be a very big promise, but then it has to really exponentially create more possibility. The problem with society is we have promises that reduce possibility. We have laws that reduce possibility. They're all based on constraints. Well, they may increase the possibility for the few, but the many are making promises in which their possibilities are not increased. This is conventional Mm. constitutional law that we have today. Mm. Um, So, that's one way when you're looking at governance, you know, are we going to agree on this? If we agree collectively, that's a collective promise. Well, what possibility? And I think this is why the fabric of society in the U.S. is coming apart because, you know, the average working class person makes a lot of promises. The people that, you know, go to school, get a job, and the potential Mm -hmm. or the possibility that's supposed to be on the other side. That's supposed to be a promise on the other side. You know, it's not like my promise and then you did better. But the amount that I've promised, is it in line? Is it commensurable with the possibility that that system created? So that's how I look Mm. at it now. Hmm. And so what would be an alternative example of, so I think that what you're pointing to is that the way that promises are currently functioning sort of in governance aren't creating very rich trust relationships. And certainly if we kind of zoom out for just a moment, we can say like, okay, yeah, uh, trust in governance in America at least is at an all time low. Um, And so what, if we go back in, how would we reimagine are, or how would we behave in order to reimagine trust or make trustworthy institutions um, that are, yeah, I, I guess I just want to unpack that. Yeah. So I would say that the fact that there's no trust in government right now is, is we should look at whether or not there's enough promise, enough new, I mean, enough new possibility that is generated or emerges from that trust, right? Millions and millions of people paying interest and going to work every day. And I mean, these are millions and millions and millions of promises being made to the United States. And is there enough possibility that emerges out of that, enough opportunity, enough, you know, potential that is created from that? I don't know. Mm. That's something interesting to look at. Um, right. And, and, you know, certainly um, working at the level of protocols is easier when you're trying to build something like a new platform or a new top technology or something, an organization that runs differently than trying to attack the system as a whole. But, uh-huh. mm-hmm. well, so how, and so if you were to build a new organization or platform, and you wanted to build highly trustworthy social networks, what would what you've discovered lead us to think we should do? Um, so, uh, so there's, so if there's a social network, and 
in order to play, you agree to an end user agreement or terms of, you know, the terms and conditions. I don't even know what they are. I never, like everybody else, I never read them. That's a promise. That's a promise that is made. And we actually do promise that because social media creates possibilities that we haven't had before, right? So this is a natural human um, uh, uh, behavior. But how can we track whether those two sides of the trust equation are breaking down? How can we track that there's there's not more and more and more promises being built up on one end and then a lot of possible, you know, Zuckerberg's getting his, his potentials really skyrocketing, skyrocketing based upon all the promises people make, you know, all these contracts Mm -hmm. for ads, but is there really, is the system generative enough so that those Mm -hmm. are somehow in balance? Okay. So there's a sense of, is the system generative enough to mm, deserve the promises that are being kind of invested into it? Is that a way to speak? Correct. Okay. Okay. And then generative so that every turn, every new promise creates possibilities that create more ability to, you know, build in factors that, that are trustworthy and that creates more, more possibility. Um, you know, you see this in very ordinary ways in the human spirit, uh, first generation immigrants who work really, really hard, long hours to create the possibility that their children will go to college, right? This is, this is, and, and people understand that that's a good deal. If they can understand that one is generative of the other. Hmm. Whoa! <laughs> I, I I love these this I, these ideas because and this is the uh, this has happened in every conversation I've had with you where you explain them and it, and it feels like they kind of sit there and then it's like a zip file where they start to unpack themselves and sort of eat or maybe like a zip file containing acid where it starts to like eat some of my conceptions up and, and sort of uh, poop out a different idea of how the world works. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's really cool. It's kind of trippy too. It is trippy. I, and I know why, but like, you know, we're doing a podcast and it can be kind of flat because we, we just want to go off in all kinds of directions. It's great to do this with groups because then you get out the whiteboards mm. and you start moving and you have, columns and you know then you have to say well how do we weigh these things and it becomes what's great about it though and the reason why we're doing this is it becomes incredibly insight generative of insights and people are not fighting about like you know people will do that they'll use an example and then it'll start to get a little bit like the conventional discourse where now you're fighting because you're biased and then but somebody who's watching can say okay hold out let's map this into like What's predictable in this situation? What's not predictable? What's the price of predicting mm. it? You know, and it starts to really, oh, that's what we were we dove into. You see, this is the mm. whole point of using this kind of framing is so that uh, groups can be very insightful and it and it can it can generate and you know that's that's yeah. kind of what the offering here is. And and so. <sighs> 
you know, before we talked about how by doing this kind of breakdown of a concept like trust, we can start to get really clear about what we might amplify on the one hand to increase trust in the network. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, what we might, what's the, what's the opposite of amplify? Either dampen or attenuate. Yeah. Dampen what, what, what we might dampen in order to, uh, or minimize in order to increase trustworthiness because right. we want to maximize trust right. in any case. So, uh, so yes, yeah, let's talk about that. Awesome, because now you discovered something else that actually I, I wasn't going to see it there that way. Yeah, so in many cases, um, we think building trust is only by, about amplifying the promise, making things more predictable. But a lot of time, it's a lot of times looking at this way in certain situations, probably in situations that feel like the the period we're in now, the promises need to be deconstructed because they're not generative of possibilities. And that is counterintuitive that you can build trust mm. by deconstructing promises in in. in um, in my work in organizations, uh, OPO, Open Participant Organizations, one of the principles is participation over reciprocity. Because reciprocity has, it's a nice word, but it's gotten to be promises that are not highly generative. A reciprocity is I do something, you know, tit for tat, right? In this new yes. environment, we don't want to emphasize reciprocity. We, we, we just... We have this podcast, we throw it out there. It might change someone's life. We don't then go knocking on the door, asking them to pay us back, right? And so that that this is a relationship that has not has reduced the need for the promissory note. And yet it creates hopefully creates more possibility. You see how it's working? It's working in mm. complex environments are different. So if I started this podcast and said, the way you increase trust in, in complex environments is you stop reciprocal relationships, that wouldn't make any sense, right? <laughs> but right. when we get in these kinds of environments, we try to like double down on those types of reciprocal relationships and they don't work in complex environments. They'll destroy mm. trust because of these other mm. things, entitlement and expectations. And, you know, reciprocity is like right. being the Sopranos, leverage and reciprocity. Right. So right. there's a lot you can do with this right. simple little uh, exercise. And and when you say participation over reciprocity, what's, what's the role of participation there? Um, um, opt in, opt out, pay it forward. Stranger. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. so, so, so like... Like like uh, ability to participate. Ability to participate. It might be. And w what we do is we we say, you know, basically you want to design something that is attractive to people, and then they participate. And this mm -hmm. and it reminds me of Jordan Greenhall's uh, notion of anti-rivalrous. They participate in a way right. in which the more people participate, the better it is for you. And these are the kinds of generative systems we are building. But reciprocity is a big one. I just had this thing with one of my partners in, um, in business that I started, and we were stuck on this thing. And it was 
you know, irritating both of us. And we thought we were dealing with it. But then finally, I realized reciprocity deep down inside. I'm like, you know, he's helped me out so much and supported my work. I was holding back, waiting for him to like, because I had in me this feeling of reciprocity, which sounds nice, but it was holding us back. And when we named it, all of a sudden the air blew open and I had an idea and I went off and developed my thing and he went off and got his thing. And now we're in a generative cycle again. So like in these really mm. complex times, some of these old virtues, we need to re-examine them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, and so when you say you named that, you kind of named that reciprocity was in play here and it was kind of muddying up the dynamics of the relationship. Yes. Okay. And then in revealing that, you kind of went back to a, a relationship of trust out of which generativity could then take yeah, place. Yeah, we were stuck. We were stuck in one of these kind of cycles that repeats itself. And then you go mm -hmm. on to the next thing, then you realize it's the same thing in a different form. And we, we, we you know, we were not arguing, but we're irritated and things just weren't flowing. And then one day I remember getting up and I Skyped him. It's the reciprocity, duh. Because it, no one mm. had asked anyone else to pay. It was, it was very subtle. You know, it was subtle that we had been so good with each other. Little by little, the space of our participation was whittling itself down to a reciprocal dyad. And that wasn't good wow. enough for what we were trying to do. It's not complex wow. enough. It's not rich enough. Right. And so right. you see this everywhere, you know, like, like, don't let, you know, that phrase they use, we, it, the, the, our, our relationship started whittling itself down into a reciprocal dyad. It's not complex enough. Mm, right, right. Okay, yeah. And so... <laughs> Uh, there, I mean, there's so many directions. I feel like we we could go anywhere with this understanding. What 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 feels important that we talk about next in terms of clarification or un unfolding this? Um. Well, you know, you said it's trippy, and maybe we can talk about that. Why is this kind of work trippy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it feels like it is like kind of bypassing my, my mimetic defenses, getting underneath like the ground and kind of uh, destroying some kind of keystone in my conceptual Lego system. And then slowly like things kind of fall away. And so that experience of that deconstruction or reconstruction feels very trippy. It's happening. It just happens in such a seemingly deep way. Or I don't know how to describe it. Actually. Yeah. So, you know, I run a, a nonprofit called All the World Insight Center. And this is the key characteristic of deep insight. It feels trippy. And the, re, you know, because we've just deconstructed a, con, a container, a constraint in the architecture of your thought, that everything you thought about trust was inside that. And now we say, oh, those walls. That was not, those were optional. Let's start from something deeper, hmm. some deep felt 
exercise tacit thing. And all of a sudden, this is the key. In, insight practice is psychoactive. That's why it feels trippy because there's a, mm. you've tapped into a knowing that's very deep and embodied. And um, it takes time to process it. Um, but you never forget it. It's not like we just downloaded a huge manual and you have to process it to, uh, to remember it. And so part of this practice, source code analysis, is part of the uh, you know, insight practices of the, of the traditions. This is, you know, Buddha sat down underneath a tree. And he, yes. And it's not deconstructive in the postmodern sense. Like, you don't just like, deconstruct it's and and so that's this is also why it's not a vertical move because the vertical moves build on and inside the box that we just released and that's that's why the vertical move seems necessary because what it's actually required is for the box to be removed and when that can't happen it hyper complexifies the conversation so this is another thing we've just learned that the meta complexity is a signal that the architecture of thought is no longer good enough and you have to go back down to source code analysis. So that's another thing that we learned. I know that's a big mouthful. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And so you can actually see that in the evolution of thought forms around specific aspects of being human where things get complicated, then meta theories emerge. And you're saying that that's actually a kind of general signal that it's time to get back to basics and build a new architecture of conceptualization of that specific yeah. aspect of being yeah. human. So if you know, Damn. yeah, so Commons work and Lectica's work, the, the model of hierarchical development, that cognitive sophistication grows hierarchically, that's true. That's true. And when you look at dynamic skill theory that that's based on, it shows that there are simple embodied things you do as a child and there's simple mappings and simple representations and you import stuff from your culture and you your cognitive structure gets very sophisticated in this hierarchical way. Insight practice says one of those pieces, one of those keystones in that architecture is either a wrong move or no longer the right move. So when you pull that out, mm. the whole thing comes down. Mm. And, and so in, in playing with this method of source code analysis, have you found that it requires a certain level of complexity or does it seem accessible to, you know, normal lay people, let's say. That's, you know, I haven't done real research on that. I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it requires cognitive complexity, but it requires something else of us. And that is um, when you've, especially for activists, it's really hard because when you've spent your whole life getting more and more sophisticated against a cause and you have this whole architecture of meaning you've made around that, if I go to a person like that and show them this, 
they have to give up a very big part of their narrative that they've constructed around their self. Mm. So you usually see the body in front of you get very, very disturbed, and it shows that something in them has the same knowing. But the cost to give up the identification with the story they've been telling themselves for years is very, very high. Mm. And one thing I noticed, I did four years of these collective practices with people who were counterculture, you know, coming from the 60s, um, um, activists. They'd spent their whole life pushing against structures like patriarchy or economy or capitalism. And we would do these collective retreats. And we would remove all those structures. There would be no facility. And what you would notice is that people were pushing against structures that weren't there. So what it requires mm. is really something like a, you know, a insight practice in a, in a Buddhist meditation sense. You have to see how this constant recreation of these narratives won't let you get beyond that box. So that's different mm. than cognitive sophistication, but it's, little beyond just the everyday person's capacity right now. Yeah. And I imagine though, that people who are growing up in a time of excessive change and volatility might be, have a higher mm, capacity to tolerate these kinds of moves. Because I mean, if you're paying attention to the world and being honest, like things fall apart all the time, conceptual mm -hmm. or otherwise. Yeah. So now we see that if we believe that the liberated person is not attached to narratives and we see the emergent pattern in society as a breakdown of narratives, one could surmise that everything's going along smoothly in the right direction of evolutionary sophistication. Mm. Because the, the pattern of you know, fake news and all this is the transition point that is being birthed by this new tolerance for, mm. um, yeah, for multiple narratives. So don't. Yeah. And the kind of rise of just multi-perspectivalism and, 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 and many different narratives. Exactly. And, you know, it's hard because it's a transition phase and the, the, there are institutions and our economic systems all you know are, are the way our food is distributed they're all dependent upon the old ways of meaning making so there's a lot of actual practical stuff that has to be figured out to catch up also right right and so you know just to try to maybe make use of this idea of trust in a given situation that might be relevant for listeners. Um, like I have often struggled with trust, um, specifically like trusting myself to know that I'm kind of doing the right thing. And so there's an issue of predictability in there, but I actually get mm, uh, people who speak to me regularly people who follow the show wondering like 
how do I know to do the right things in my life? Like, how do I trust that the path that I'm walking is, uh, is adequate or the right path or however you want to frame that? And I wonder if we could leverage this idea of trust to work on that level too. Is that a possibility? Yeah, could you give an example? Because I, can, I feel myself projecting three different scenarios. and Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, in the hmm, – I mean, there's – yeah, obviously, our relationship with ourselves and the kind of do we trust ourselves to do what we've told ourselves that we're going to do is, I think, one dimension of it. So there's, there's that – piece, which I think is really interesting. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on. And then there's uh, uh, whether or not I can kind of trust what I'm doing with my life, given that the future is so unpredictable. Yeah. How do I generate trust and kind of commit to the path that I'm on? Yeah. So I wrote one thing I wrote here that we didn't talk about is um, when we get into times of transition or um, when what's important to us is navigating complex, un- unpredictable situations, then we have to let go of coupling the notion of predictable with trust almost entirely, right? So um, there, there is so um, if we so we're doing this. Maybe something we're saying here is going to spark the imagination of a tyrant who has incredible coding power and lots of money, and that will be the outcome of this conversation. You know, Hannah Arendt talked about this. She said, you know, the human condition is such that we must act without being able to know the consequences of our actions. And that's a deep, so yeah. now we've just, that's a very, very deep trust because we're saying we're going to give the universe all the wiggle room. I'm going to give myself all the wiggle room that happens. Mm-hmm. I'm not controlling it, right? Mm-hmm. And because, in mm-hmm. fact, I don't know what the consequences of my action are. And when you do that to yourself, you you release enormous potential because that's how it works. That's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. These protocols aren't metaphorical it's like that's how it works hmm. does that help answer your question i know but that's the answer that's, yeah that, that's how it works trust trust me i've been experimenting with this yeah i believe you i mean i trust you i i, I actually and i can feel that that's true in a sense. And I, I, yeah, but it's just, it is, again, it's, it's extremely psychoactive like that. So I teach people, you know, start somewhere and take a chance. It's not going to destroy yourself and, and, and be playful about it. Playful is very important, right? Because, Mm -hmm. but when you start and you have to notice, because remember I said, it's hard to notice when trust is, is online, right? So if you take a little chance Mm-hmm. And you notice, then that'll give you confidence to go further. But it's really how how it works. This is like deep human mm. code. And 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 then so that seems to uh, 
deal with or answer the question of how do I trust the path I'm moving forward on or how do I trust life in a sense? Yes. And then, then what about the dimension of like my relationship with myself, whether I can trust myself? I, I think, you know, now we're getting into kind of like uh, different kind of conversation. It's fine. Um, but again, what, what, what if, if, if we're, this wasn't a podcast and we were talking about that, we were on my porch and you, you asked me that, I would go slow and, would, and I would say, well, what do you mean by trust yourself? Like what's in that equation, right? What's in that equation mm-hmm. that um, I'm smart enough to make the right move? Well, that's not what trust is built on. Or, you know, we would unpack mm-hmm. it to see what's, what's in your tacit, what's tacit yeah. in that statement. Totally. And so just to unpack it a a little bit is, um, you know, I hear from people and I have experience with this where I I have people say like, I've, I committed to do X for Y period of time. And then I didn't, and I didn't do it again. And then over time, I just feel like I don't trust myself. And I've been in that situation. and, And my experience was that it took me a long time to actually build up a relationship of trust with myself after I had a lifetime of kind of breaching that trust by not doing what I said I would do. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so that's kind of a hangover on that value of commitment and predictability. And then you could say, mm-hmm. well, either I was, you know, you people know when you're, I committed to that because I knew I wasn't going to do it and I just needed the money. Okay. Well, now you've learned something about yourself that's actually trustworthy, that you're a good strategist, right? So, I don't think you're asking about that. You're act. You're you're talking about the actual hangover of authentically committing and then seeing yourself not follow through. Right. You're, you're talking more like that. Yes. Right. So that's part of this yes. thing. Something in you, the genius in you, knows that that was a bum deal. That making that promise didn't come with enough possibility. You just something in you knows that unless. You're not honest with yourself and you know you were being a jerk. And that's okay. Some of us do that also. You know, I signed up for this thing online. Mm. I committed and then I canceled because I just, you know, but that doesn't destroy your trust. But that's what I'm saying. Instead of working with these old ways that we use map language onto values, you have to work backwards, right? So, um, Mm. and, and that would be one way using... A, a concrete example, then what you know would have parameters. Well, well, I wasn't it worth it to you? I mean, what actually happened? Well, now you understand how it works. Mm-hmm. So, um, and if you wanted, if you need to do that in the future, then you know you're just a good strategist, and you can take the moral hit for that. But that's a different territory than than not just trusting yourself. Yes. Okay. Cool. So that that feels like it. it, it will give people who are struggling with those two dimensions, trusting life or trusting themselves, something to chew on. And I think that there's a lot there that they could make use of. Um, I, I am curious to circle back around to this idea of letting go of the coupling of predictability and trust, which, you know, I, I took a note on it and it, like it made so much sense when you were talking about it, but then I go back to it and I, I almost can't even... Like that is trust and predictability seems so deeply coupled, you know, in our, in our kind of 
uh, naive understanding of what trust is. So how do people begin to unwind that coupling if that's what's necessary when we live in extremely complex times? Well, let's go back to the notion of commitment as predictable, right? Commitment is an attempt to take a complex thing called a human relationship and make it more predictable, correct? Would you agree with that, right? That's Mm -hmm. why you commit, right? That's why you make a verbal commitment. So when, so there's something funny going on here because we're trusting the meaning of commitment and the mapping of commitment or predictability and trust, but we're not trusting what actually was the outcome of that. So what I'm saying is the outcome of this commitment I made, even though it was authentic, was I didn't follow through. And so what am I trusting? Am I trusting my language and the the way words set up the situation for me? Or am I trusting that the point I stopped following through, I was really my actual authentic need or feeling was I didn't want to do it anymore. And that's what I followed through with. So it doesn't make sense to trust stock phrases and stock meaning. It makes sense to trust, well, what was the actual outcome of that? And um, and investigate that, you know? So, um, so in terms of predictable, I think that, um, does it, it, it's, it's, I I agree with you. It's very hard and very, uh, interesting to disembed the notion of trust from predictability. And so I would just say that I think everybody Mm. knows that the people they trust the most on a deeper level are not predictable like stones. You wouldn't even use that word trust at a certain point. You'd be, you know, you, you don't say I trust the stone is going to lay upon the earth unless you're someone like me. And that notice what's your capacity for wiggle room in any trust relationship. I would suspect that you would be surprised to see in some cases there's more wiggle room in the people that you trust more. You give them than than in people you trust less. People I trust less, I want contracts. Mm-hmm. I want predictable relationships. Mm. I want everything to be on the table. I want you know everything in writing. This is why contractual right. relationships don't build trust because they reduce the wiggle room. So mm. you know. I don't know how to make it easier. Trust is messy. But Mm. um, Mm -hmm. I think we have all the conceptual primes that we need to keep working in this way. Yeah, totally. And and, uh, that idea of the wiggle room, like that, and this is again getting back to that space in the, in the, in this approach where I identified the image of the attractor kind of going back down, but still is a dynamic system. Um, and I remember in that visualization that I was referring to that there was, 
you could it was like a flash animation you could kind of drag the attractor mm-hmm. points to change the dynamics of the system and it occurs to me that you know if we're talking about a system or an organization or a institution that we want to yeah maximize that wiggle room in order to remain as generative as possible and so that's a real or is that a kind of am i, am I understanding yeah, that yeah. correctly you're or, going uh, to a great place but, with that and i love the notion of can i you know can i set parameters so like whoa that that went way too far out and i just have to admit like i'm losing trust at that level you know and i and and, and to mm-hmm. be honest it's not a bad thing and and you know what are the parameters like what are the sliders right how many degrees of freedom in what mm. direction how many times do we have to return to touch um you, you you know if oh i just thought of some another way to talk about it you know when we look at the history of how human groups stay together early on, you know, I said, how many times do we have to return to touch? Well, in, in hominids and the and apes and many mammals, the way the group stay together is they have to touch each other at least once a day or several times a day. So there's not a lot of wiggle room there, mm. right? You have to, you know, the wolves have to be in each other's mouths and the birds have to sing, you know, there's, there's this constant reiteration and repetition to keep that bond together. And we've come mm. to be people, mm-hmm. we've been part of our success is being able to um, create trust across time and distance. That's tremendously much more wiggle room. And I think that that capacity, you know, this notion of wiggle room is, is, is something to look at and it's counterintuitive because the contracted state that you get in trust is predictability and control. And that's in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still feeling into the, the, all of this terrain and, and, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit more about, blockchain and those kinds of distributed technologies because you know I I have understood them and I think the the common understanding in the world right now of people who actually know about this stuff is that they're technologies that help us kind of disintermediate trust and people talk about like a kind of trustless mm-hmm. future and I wonder what this understanding of trust that we've just unfolded might say to that yeah notion. so it's a it's a great experiment because i think this this inquiry into trust is is vast and a long game um so blockchain i think is is useful in common um ta- to, for common tasks like to you know it's basically to get um uh to me, blockchain is useful to drive um, intermediary um, organizations or costs out of the system, right? So toward drive, mm-hmm. drive finance toward um, uh, zero some some zero margin production, right? So that's kind of a boring mm-hmm. way to look at blockchain, but it's very uh, important thing, just like. 
we drove the, uh, you know, people who used to give travel agents out of business, right? Disintermediate travel arrangements. Mm -hmm. People then get very high ambitions around blockchain. And, and where it makes me nervous is they think the perfect system is one that can't be transgressed. And a system that can't be, has no transgression mm -hmm. either kills itself or doesn't evolve, or when it evolves, it crashes hugely, <laughs> to use a phrase mm -hmm. of our great and fearless leader. So this is a, this is a <laughs> false knowing that a lot of people, and you know, before blockchain came through, a lot of people were building these platforms that were going to control, you know, give people the ability to start whole new civilizations, but they all had control features that were partial. You know, mm. you're not going to reproduce you know, the evolutionary genius of the universe that produced us. We, I think we have to have smart blockchain technologies and, um, and, and that maximize the wiggle room. You know, the, the cost for transgression mm. cannot be that high. So, you know, mm. I don't want to play. It's like the economy, right? Do we want markets to be completely predictable? No, because then the person that owns the smartest computer mm. would have all the money. You, you, you can't trust mm -hmm. a 100% predictable market because there's just a winner-take-all situation. Right. So, right, right. I, I'm curious if you are aware of the Holochain project. Or yes, I'm aware of it. And I was going to say, I believe they're third, you know, I would call that third generation looking at this. And I know people who are um, on top of it. And I have talked these kinds of discussions with and they're very excited about the level of intel intelligence embodied intelligence that mm -hmm. is being put into to holochain so i haven't spent a lot of time there um but yeah i think they are assessing some of these same um they're at least aware of the dimensions yes. of the problem that it seems like a lot of other blockchain projects are just naively walking directly into without a second. Yeah. Thought. Or, I mean, and, and well, yeah. I get, those are my words, not yours. And, uh, and, you know, just the way in which blockchain is currently conceptualized and constructed, you know, it's funny that it's a tool that a lot of people believed to be the like kind of liberator of mankind to a certain degree. Right. Like there's a lot of possibility invested in it by folks, but at the same time, could you can easily consider how a totalitarian state could use it to make the worst situation that would just be a kind of inescapable techno totalitarian Correct. end game. And so it's very interesting that the same technology could yeah. accomplish both of those things so, in the minds of But this is why people. I think it's important, because if you're looking at blockchain to disintermediate currency, that's one thing. That's a robust but small goal. If you're looking at it to create, liberate people into like, you know, disintermediate trust from the, out of the embodied 
heartfelt sense, that I think that's very dangerous. It 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 conflates trust with control and and predictability, and that's in the wrong direction. Mm. That's that's. And it's, you know, trying to make trust hopelessly complex instead of alive and dynamic, emergent from simple, robust protocols that have evolved over millions and millions of years. And so, you know, I know a a small group of people who have a startup in Puerto Rico. They're building blockchain technologies, but their basic knowledge base is exogen training. Because they're looking mm. at this kind of way we're talking about the human condition and saying, what what if we use that to inform these these technologies? Mm. So that's a very sophisticated, like transdisciplinary approach. But I think I think it's in the imagination. These kinds of conversations are in the blockchain community, Holochain, and these other guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and I'm. I feel like it's it's. A, we're entering a very fascinating period of time where we can actually build technologies that are uh, sort of designed from the perspective of a certain ontology, and that ontology can then be almost replicated or can infect the world through the technology. And so, like Holochain, I actually just had a conversation with one of the creators of it. Is a form of biomimicry. Yeah. Like they designed it by looking at, you know, how f- like water flows yes. and ecosystems and how flowers give their pollen to bees. And there's a similar kind of thing, I think, that's happening here with the way that you're trying to present some of these concepts where you're, yeah, there's a form of biomimicry happening here that, you know, makes yeah. makes it feel very trustworthy. What are the simplest protocols that generate rich environments and rich environments have tremendous dynamic wiggle room? And, you know, right. and and these, these technologies, these pl- platforms have to be generative of emergent outcomes. Well, of course, they are AI. <laughs> It generates uh, mm. unknown outcomes itself. So, I mean, that doesn't make them perfect. But, yeah, so this is a nice space. And, I, I, you know, I think that we've done a good job of kind of giving the, your listeners a flavor of what kinds of conv- – remember the fir- I remember we ended the first podcast. And I'm like, you know, there's just so much going on that um, you, don't, mm. you don't see – on the internet, you know, so many people having really cool conversations and we had um, planned to have conversations that would give people the sense of, of that. And I think this one's been really kind of up to, up to snuff there. Yeah. Thank you, Bonita. I, I, um, this is just so good and so clarifying for me. And I, since our last conversation, as I mentioned to you before the show started, I've already begun using it in all kinds of different contexts. I want to encourage folks who are listening to follow if you have that kind of intuitive insight hit where you're like, oh, this is like kind of true or kind of useful. Uh, Do the work of actually unpacking that and using that in your life. And it will start to like get into your bones over time. I can already see that that that's the directionality of it. And, and I'm very excited about that. 
And so I encourage people who are listening, you know, go on that journey too, if, if it feels like it's generative and interesting to you. No, I think it's been, I, I, I liked it better because we, it was more messy. It had more wiggle room and it brought in a lot of like sidebars. Um, so hopefully, you know, like your strange attractor, it returned uh, to the core thread um, enough so that held together for, for the audience. 